The RAND is holding the line in the face of war, market volatility and inflation. But for how long? And has global inflation indeed peaked? Plus, with the energy crisis in Europe intensifying, will its impact reach South African shores? This is no ordinary Wednesday. It's an in-depth look at events and trends moving the market, shaping the economy and changing the game. A warm welcome. I'm Jeremy Max. We'll start with our currency, which, unlike some other emerging market currencies, is standing firm amidst global turmoil. Why is this happening? And for how long? Head of equity finance at Investec Corporate and Institutional Banking, Phil Dube, welcome to No Ordinary Wednesday. So, Phil, one might have expected general risk-off sentiment to dent the RAND, but instead our currency has strengthened since the start of the war in Ukraine. What is driving these gains? Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, great to be here. And uh, it's also quite pleasing to see the RAND on the right side of a risk-off environment. So what's driving the RAND strength? Firstly, we've seen large portfolio inflows directed at both the bond and equity markets. That is foreign investors seeking yield, but also investing in local equities, where some of our local counters are still trading at a discount relative to global peers. Commodity prices, now that's been a big driver as well. During the global economic recovery, we did see a notable commodities rally. But since the invasion of Ukraine, we've witnessed severe supply-side shocks due to Russia being sanctioned, basically being removed from the supply list, resulting in sharp increases in commodity prices, which is also supportive of RAND strength. Third, well, the Tsar looks pretty attractive at the moment inside the EM basket. With Russia being sanctioned as the ruble is falling off a cliff, we also have Turkey and Brazil going through their own respective economic challenges. This is providing a very strong argument for an EM allocation that is likely to be more concentrated towards South Africa. Lastly, rates will always continue to influence the RAND. With inflation testing the upper band of the sub limit, which is between 3 and 6%, and the last print was at 5.7, we've already seen a couple of rate hikes already. And there's a further probability that the Reserve Bank will front load further hikes to bring inflation under control in the short term. These factors are all supportive of RAND strength. So, Phil, having outlined all of that, how much of this is due to shift in government policy? And if that's the case, is it going to have a material impact on the RAND going forward? The government policy has a very big contributor into what we should and should expect going forward. Number one, we've seen a noted improved prospect and sentiment around our economic activity. Number one, based on reform and government spending, I think you've seen a significant handbrake in a government actively trying to manage and control the wage bill, trying to control the overspending in state-owned entities, and government stabilizing debt. I think that's probably also a very big contribution. And with these policies, I think it does well to give the market confidence and a positive sentiment. And one has to also factor in the fact that South Africa is a very developed market in terms of infrastructure. We have very deep liquid markets. If you look at, you know, the bond exchange, look at the JC stock exchange, where we have deep liquid markets. And at the same time, we have some of our securities that trade at considerable discount to offshore securities valuation. That in itself also does assist. And if you look at the emerging markets basket, you have the likes of Russia, Turkey, Brazil, and some other Latin American countries.
countries there, South Africa stands heads and shoulders above most of these countries when it comes to capital markets infrastructure. And we as South Africa, if we find ourselves with a government and government policies that are conducive to growth, that seem to be stabilizing government spending and government policies, this really does support the narrative and sentiment going forward. We know that Moody's has put South Africa on a stable outlook. How is this reduced credit risk going to support the RAND? I think it is important for one to note that we are still two levels below investment grade. But yeah, we should celebrate this. You know, it is a step in the right direction. I think it is good for us to arrest the free fall in our rating that we've seen over the last two to three years. And I think it gives us great confidence to see Moody's revise the rating of SA local currency debt to stable. And the narrative does remain positive and encouraging going forward. A lot of it has come from windfall tax receipts coming through from the receipt and the government debt mirroring. And Moody's has actually expressed themselves saying that they see government debt now peaking at 80% of GDP by 2025, which is net uh, positive as well. All right, fair enough. You've outlined the big macro issues as far as our currency is concerned. But Phil, how does this affect you and me? Is this going to soften, for instance, the blow of high interest rates and inflation going forward? I think in the short term, the RAND should act as a stabilizer or at least absorb the shock of uh, the increased commodity price that we've seen recently. What are the drivers of RAND strength? If we unpack this, obviously, number one is economic activity, and we've seen the economic recovery over the last three or six months. High inflation expectations, which then drive high interest rates, also are a driver of RAND strength. But the inflation expectations have been to a point where it is so high, I do believe that in the short term, we will still feel further pain. I think the Reserve Bank is expected to front load the interest rates to try and actually arrest the inflation that we've seen recently to ensure that we stay inside the band of 3 to 6%. As I said, the last print was at 5.7%. What that means is that we still probably will feel a bit of pain going forward. We should still expect higher interest rates as the inflation expectation is still much higher. But with the RAND strength, we should have some sort of shock absorber or a stabilization effect where the RAND actually takes away some of this move higher that we've seen recently. But I do feel that the move in the rates that we are still expecting to see will be much greater than what the RAND can actually do to assist us when it comes to paying off our mortgages. Uh, so yes, the RAND will, will assist, but not to a point where we're not going to feel further pain in the short term. And a final question. How strong then is that shock absorber that you refer to? Going forward, what's your prognosis on the RAND outlook? We expect commodity prices to remain elevated in the short to medium term, which should support the RAND. On the physical front, though, we still see many headwinds, including unemployment and GDP revisions that are still trading lower, which is a big concern for growth going forward. The debt consolidation is a silver lining, as it's providing further support and positive sentiment. But we see rates as the key contributor to our RAND forecast going forward. So with the Fed's also hiking rates and the narrowing of the rate differential, this is net negative for ZAR going forward. And we forecast a slightly weaker RAND with the pullback to run about the mid-15 levels by mid-next year. Phil Dubé, thank you for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. In a moment, we'll discuss some surprising inflation movements with Chief Investment Strategist at Investec Wealth and Investment, Chris Holdsworth. But a quick reminder, a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us.
Global inflation has surged in recent months. How high could it go and for how long? Or are we in for a surprise? Let me welcome into the conversation the Chief Investment Strategist at Investec, Chris Holdsworth. Chris, uh, a very warm welcome to you. So let's start with this. What is driving global inflation so far? And what do those numbers look like? Hi, Jeremy. There are a mixture of factors driving inflation. It, it's a combination of both supply and demand. Uh, about six or so months ago, everyone was saying it was supply chain issues, and that was partly true at the time, but we've seen a massive ramp up in demand as well. So broadly speaking, what we've had up until quite recently is massive increase in transit costs across the globe. You know, we've had a pretty sizable increase in the oil price, and now we're starting to see broad to the second round inflation. And what that's meant is that it's pushed US inflation up to 8%. European inflation is around 7%, and that's the highest number we've seen for Europe and since the data starts in around the 90s. And PPI inflation in Europe is sitting at around 40% or so. A lot of that got pushed up in, in March because of what we saw with Russia invading Ukraine and the knock-on consequences for, for energy prices. So a broad mix, supply chain stuff, energy prices, and just rampant demand because of stimulus that we've seen from various governments in response to COVID. I imagine there is one overarching concern, though, and in just a moment I'll be talking to your colleague in the United Kingdom, Phil Shaw, about the full extent of the European energy crisis brought on by the war in Ukraine. But very briefly, how has this crisis impacted inflation? It's come through in two particular ways. So the first was the disruption to supply chains because of COVID. So we landed up with ships not being able to be fully staffed. We landed up with huge backlogs outside of the ports. And so we were unable to get goods distributed globally. But at the same time, because of the stimulus that we'd seen, we saw a, a massive amount of shopping, huge increase. So total retail sales at one point were up over 20% relative to pre-COVID levels. They've drifted down a bit, but not much. So we're looking at... A, huge increase in retail, but retailers were unable to restock. And the net result of that was a massive decline in inventories. The ratio of inventories to sales was close to the lowest that we've seen in, in 20 years. So that was the first push. And uh, we saw this massive increase in demand. So retailers could push up prices, but also they needed to restock and it was going to cost them a lot to do so. So they started to push on some prices. And then at the same time, we had an energy crisis. We had an energy crisis in Europe, partly because of a more rapid transition to renewables. So they'd switched off gas, they switched off coal, and then it turned out we went through a period where the wind didn't blow as much and the sun didn't shine as much and there was a shortage in any event. And then you ended up with Russia invading Ukraine and that pushed up gas prices even further. So it's, it's a combination of energy prices and supply chain issues ultimately combined with a bit of demand. And, and that's all you know, multi-decade high inflation rates pretty much across the globe. Can you give us a sense then of trajectory in the recent Investec Global Investment View, which I must tell our audience is available on our content hub, Investec Focus? You speak of signs of disinflationary pressures building. What does that mean? Is it that global inflation is close to peaking? That's exactly right. The print that we're seeing now in the US will be the peak for this cycle. And there are a number of reasons to believe that. First of all, oil. During March, oil averaged around $110 per barrel. April month to date, the average is around 104 and it's currently training a bit below that as well. So if spot prices remain for the rest of the month, we've got about a 5% decline in oil. And oil is directly 5% of the basket for a lot of countries around the globe. In the US, it's around 4 
So that will take a bit off inflation. But there are other factors as well. Used car prices. In the US, used car prices are 4% of the basket. They were down in February. They're down in March. If you look at transit costs across the globe, they're down 15% relative to where they were in February. They're down 25% relative to where they were in September last year. That was the peak. We've also got a large amount of housing stock that's going to be coming to the market in the US over the next six months. The highest amount that we've seen since the 70s. There are more homes under construction now in the US than at any point in the past 50 years. And when those come to market, that will push down some house prices and it will push down rent. So everywhere we look for all the major components of CPI, we are seeing signs that inflation is peaking now and will start to roll over. And it's a similar story in Europe, a bit more complicated there because of the energy crisis. But in general, we are probably at the point now where inflation peaks. So you mentioned used cars in the United States, also house prices. We know that old adage that when America sneezes, uh, the rest of the world catches a cold. You're suggesting then that we should be watching U.S. inflationary pressure very closely. Am I getting that right? Absolutely. And the reason we should be doing so is because the market somewhat has lost faith in the Fed. What's currently priced in is for inflation to remain above 2% in the U.S. for the next five years. Now, the Fed's target is 2%. So the market has capitulated. They said inflation is going to be sticky. It's going to take a long time to drift down. It's going to remain elevated. And as a result, the market is simultaneously concerned that the Fed is going to do what it takes to regain their credibility. That is, hike very aggressively. What's currently priced in is for the Fed to hike by 50 basis points in May, and then another 50 basis points in June, and then another 50 basis points immediately subsequent to that because of these inflationary pressures. And if it turns out to be the case and inflation does roll over as we expect and surprises on the downside, then they don't need to hike as aggressively. So for the next month or two, the key series to be aware of is what's happening to US inflation. It'll matter immensely for the policy direction from the Fed as well. And that matters a lot for a number of different markets across the globe. But first and foremost, we have to have an idea on where US inflation peaks and how rapidly it's going to decline. And that allows us to get an informed view on interest rates in general. So to conclude then, given the fluidity and all the different factors that you've mentioned, is it difficult then to forecast? It, it is a bit opaque at the moment, especially given what's happened with Russia and Ukraine and the volatility that that causes in energy prices. And energy is a large component of inflation. So we know we're close to the peak and we know inflation will start to head down, but it's not immediately clear how rapidly that will occur. And in the background, you've got an equity market in the US that, that's not cheap. And the, the forward multiple is around 19 times or so. There's not a huge margin of safety. So there, there's every reason to be a bit cautious at this point and to keep a steady eye on, on what's happening on the inflation front. I'm going to leave it there, Chris Holdsworth. Thank you for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. With no end in sight to the Ukraine war, Europe's energy supply is taking center stage. Europe, you know, is dependent on Russian gas and oil with insufficient, easily available substitutes. Pipeline gas flows to Europe have largely remained unchanged, but what would happen if Russia cut off supply? Chief economist at Investec UK Full Shore joins us now on No Ordinary Wednesday to explain why this predicament is now regarded by most in Europe as a real crisis. Phil, it's good to have you back on No Ordinary Wednesday. How did we get to this point in the gas crisis? And in your opinion, how bad could things get? 
Hi, Jeremy. It's good to be back. In terms of where this all started, I suppose you have to look at the demand side of the picture as well as supply. And we saw a massive expansion of the Western economies post-COVID through the course of 2021. That resulted in a, a big rise in demand for energy. And what we had was a, was a cocktail of factors, really. Arguments about gas supply coming from Russia in, in terms of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. This was well before the invasion of Ukraine. OPEC Plus managing to restrict supply, pushing oil prices up. And specific factors, for example, in the UK, relatively little wind, which resulted in a, a big demand, particularly from Britain, for gas in Europe. So before the Russians invaded Ukraine, we're already in a situation where energy prices were rising sharply. And really, that's just been exacerbated by what's happened since February the 24th. How bad could things get? Well, I'd rather not get into depressing details too much here. But effectively, if for whatever reason, Russian gas stops flowing from various terminals in Russia towards Western Europe, then it simply isn't a case of, well, Europe will find gas supplies from elsewhere, but the price will be higher. There simply is not enough supply. So in practice, if that were to happen, then what you would see is energy rationing in places such as Germany, which is very dependent on on Russian supplies, which means that households would be without gas. And you could even see, for example, German industry working on, for example, a three-day working week. Now, that's probably as bad as it might get, and that certainly isn't our base case, but one has to look at alternative scenarios, worst case scenarios that, that you've just described. Beyond Europe, of course, there would be knock-on implications, I imagine, for global trade. Well, very much so. Someone asked me a few weeks ago, uh, when was the last time you bought anything Russian from the shops? And I can't actually remember that there aren't a lot of Russian goods in, in European shops. But what's more important is that Russia is a, a massive commodity supplier even when you don't consider oil and gas. So, for example, it's, it's a big producer of palladium, which goes into catalytic converters in cars. It's also a big supplier of potash, which goes into fertilizers for agriculture. So, if you begin to take those things out, if you take, for example, neon production out of Ukraine, which is dependent on Russian steel waste, you're looking at factors such as reducing laser output, which could be critical in semiconductor manufacture. All this just shows you really how interdependent the global economy is. And without those things coming out of Russia, you're, you're looking at supply chains being snagged up even further over the medium term. I'm assuming that the hunt is now on for viable alternatives. In terms of energy, it certainly is. Of course, the, the issue is that trying to improve energy supply is really a medium-term strategy. There, there, there is no short-term fix here. So, for example, last week in the UK, the government published its energy security paper, which will put more emphasis on non-hydrocarbons, further expansion of offshore wind power. Um, and in the UK, um, in 2020, for example, wind power accounted for close to 25% of electricity generation and also more nuclear power stations as well. But, you know, as I said, there, there isn't very much you can do in the short term here. The UK and Germany actually have decided to extend the life of their nuclear power stations, which particularly for Germany is a big U-turn uh, because a number of years ago, the German government decided that it was going to decommission its nuclear power stations early. So you know, that is what you can do in the short term, but really it doesn't make up for the lack of supply in the short term. And I think countries now are scrambling to prioritize medium-term energy security. 
And in that respect, I imagine there are geopolitical consequences as countries look to scramble for those substitutes. It could force countries in Europe into difficult, uncomfortable alliances. The West has been urging the Saudis, for example, to expand their output. There have even been conversations with President Maduro in Venezuela, who has long been seen, seen as a pariah. So, yes, I think if anything, it does show you how desperate the situation is with regard to the lack of energy supply because of the Ukraine situation. And already leaders in Europe, I imagine, are learning lessons on the fly. Well, that's right. Um Certainly, political constraints to improving and and augmenting energy supply are are now being dismantled because of the urgency of the situation. And another situation, I think it's probably true throughout Europe and certainly the UK, um, is that we we have just-in-time economies with relatively little storage, relatively little inventory. And that's very true of the UK's gas supply. If you've got decent pipelines running into land from the North Sea, supposedly you don't need much storage. But clearly, there's not much room for error there. And, and it might be something which governments look at, um, not just in the context of energy, but in the context of semi-finished goods as well, because of the wider problems with supply chains we've been seeing over the past year. Full Shaw is the chief economist at Investec UK. Full, thanks for your time. Sure. My pleasure. Please join us again on the 27th of April as we continue to explore money trends shaping your world. If you haven't yet added us to your podcast feed, search for Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs, and the entire Focus Radio team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.